History, Lecture 34, Rabbi Blyweiss, more sad days. The, we, we, um, I talked about the Chorban Beis of Mikdash. Now, as all the pandemonium is setting in and we described the scene, where were you the night of Tisha B'Av? It was Motzei Shabbos, it was, was Motzei Shemitah, it was all kinds of things that everybody remembers every detail. Meanwhile, inside the city, Tzidkiyahu and his ten sons have a plan. They get advice from the Navi Irmiyahu, and it's usually a good idea to follow the Gadolador, especially if he's got a red phone to the Eibrister, to the Ribona Shalolam. Uh, and Irmiyahu tells him, in, tells him in no uncertain terms that his only hope, the last king of the Jews, is to give himself up to the captor, to the enemy, to Babylon. Tzibkiyahu does not listen. Another fault of his. And they escape by night in a tunnel called Tzidkiyahu's Tunnel that... Uh, uh, no, that's Chizkiyahu's Tunnel. And I can hear the confusion. Many other people make it too. But there is a place. I wouldn't go there today given the um, uh, the uh, Lebedic nature of what goes on these days in East Jerusalem. But um, it's a tour maybe we'll do this year. I often take guys over there just outside of Damascus Gate to the um, to the east, which is, let's say, coming from here, from Yeshiva towards Damascus Gate, is when you make a left closer into East Jerusalem, there is a paid entrance site called, alternately, Tzidkiyahu's Tunnels or Shlomo's Solomon's Quarries. Anybody ever been there? Okay. More on that another time. There's a place you can go. Is it the real Tzidkiyahu's Tunnels? I couldn't tell you. Archaeologists would tell you, and if you had a secular or even an overly uh, rationalist tour guide, they would say this is certifiably not Tzidkiyahu's tunnels. How do they know that? They know that because one of the qualities you know about these tunnels is they went from under Yerushalayim, Yerakodesh, they formed the tunnel that went all the way out to Argos, Yericho, all the way down and through the Judean mountains, heading out into the area of Jericho, due east of the city on the eastern, on the eastern side of the country. And um, that was their escape route. And the archaeologists would tell you, we have not found any such tunnels. Everything in that area that's known as Sikiao's tunnels is seemingly hermetically sealed. It's sealed. It doesn't seem to have any, any further outlets. To which we say, as we so often say to, I mean, we being tradition and Torah Jews and, and whatnot, when they come with claims that say, ah, oh, see, the Torah is not true. Because Kathleen Kenyon, remember I said this way back when, actually excavated Jericho and she said she didn't discover those walls that came tumbling down that morning. And what we say to Ms. Kenyon is the same thing we say to the archaeologists uh, by Tzikiao's tunnels. We say, lack of evidence is not evidence of lack. In other words, the fact that you haven't discovered it means one thing, you haven't discovered it. Not that it doesn't exist. Who knows? In the case of Jericho, the walls come tumbling down. We know they never came tumbling down that morning. Rather, the measures we said, we, we said this in class here too, that they sunk miraculously beneath the earth. So they're not, they're not there to be discovered by Kathleen Kenyon or any other uh, British or otherwise archaeologist. But, um, okay, so those are further discussions. We do know the story takes place. That's our tradition. And they, uh, they, they try to escape by night in a tunnel that, all the way out to Jericho. We'll look it up in the Gemara and Eruvin and Samachal from the base. They were spotted somehow by a deer. Animals have some kind of a sixth sense that they can perceive these things. And as they were fleeing through the tunnel, and it wasn't just Tzidkiyahu and his ten sons, the existing Sanhedrin in Yerushalayim also, also accompanied them. They fled inside the bowels of the earth, and on dry land above, the deer somehow was aware of their movements and followed them and tracked them going along to Jericho. And guess who noticed a funny-looking deer? None other than our enemies themselves, the Kazdim, who we identified yesterday as the Babylon, Babylonians. The Kazdim saw this and they said, well, that's awfully odd. Let's follow that thing. And they did. And they ran and they ran and they ran, both underground, <coughs> both subterraneanly and, and, uh, and on top of the dry ground. And guess who all reached the mouth of the tunnel simultaneously? As they departed from the tunnel, they walked right into the hands of the enemy that they sought to escape. And the moral of the lesson, listen to the Navi when he tells you something in no uncertain terms. If I be careful of such things. Now, they capture them. They take them back to Bavel, to Nebuchadnezzar. 
Sitkiao understands his, the jig is up. He begs the king, please let me die first. Instead, in an unspeakable act of cruelty, I don't know if it's the greatest act of cruelty, we're going to see a lot of such acts through history, but it's certainly up there if you want to start ranking top ten. He kills off the entire Sanhedrin. He then, one by one, kills off each of the sons of the king. And with the sole survivor, the king, he then goes and has his, has his men take him. They pop out each of his eyes, throw them into an oven, and imprison the king, keeping him alive and therefore subject to the worst, most harrowing of punishments, so that he's got not only survivor's guilt, he has the last vision indelibly embedded in his mind, the last thing he witnessed with his own eyes was the death of his own children, which is horrific enough for a parent. But are you paying attention and you realize the implications of this? Yeah, I was. What are the implications of this? No, no, this is not just, this is not just a tragedy of personal proportions here. Tzidkiah watching each of his ten children die in front of him. Think about this. It sounds like it's the end of the Davidic line. Those are his sons and they're dead and he's going to be uh, imprisoned now, what seems to be for the rest of his life, what's going to happen to base David and to Mashiach? I tried to remember, I tried to trace it yesterday, the Davidic line, yes. and I got like, I got to like the most random Yeah, there are a lot of different people who trace it. I, I mentioned to you, Rashi traces his lineage, the Marshal from Rashi, the, uh, the, the Barbanel has such, such a lineage. We have some great and some less known people who also claim to, to, that we trace it. We, uh, uh, no way of really knowing these things for sure since there are all these kind of missing links. Um, and when Eliyahu comes, it'll all be very clear then anyway, so we don't have to worry about it. Um, we'll identify who's who and what's what. But um, now, Tzidkiyahu, the last king, is imprisoned until the day before his death. Stay tuned what happens on that momentous day. The Bais, the Beis Mikdash, has stood for how many years? You remember this? Ten years. Four hundred and ten years. The Second Temple, four hundred and twenty years. Hinted at this is from the Balaturim in, in, in Sefer Shmos. The pasuk that says Shemen Zais Zach Katis Katis Chaf Taf Yud Taf, crushed olive oil, crushed. If you break it down, the letters Chav Tav in Gematria is 420, Yud Tav in Gematria 410, an allusion to the two Bate Mikdash that stood. And we said yesterday the causes this time around, the Second Temple is going to be a totally different story, <coughs> much less clear what went wrong. Here it's much more clear. They were forewarned by generations of prophets that the problems were said this at the end of yesterday, Abodazara, Giliarayos, Shvichus Domim, and they, and in addition, elsewhere, it, it, it cites the, the neglect of, we said this yesterday too, Shemitah years, the Shemitah years, which we said is a reflection of the lack of mitochon. Now, what's less known, I'm going to cite a bunch of sources to sustain this idea, it's a hard idea to take in, but it really seems to be true, it really wasn't as bad as it sounds. And it's, yet again, I'm going to try to, I'm going to um, promote this thesis, I'm persuaded that this is true, that the harsh criticism that we find in the Navi that describes this, the Navi being Yirmiyahu writing Malachim and, 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 and the other accounts of the Horban, the Navi is scathing of Klal Yisrael because he could be, because we are on such a high level we could hear it, and therefore, um, therefore it, the, the uh, criticisms come in what we can only be understood as gr massive inflated exaggerations, the crimes were actually local and limited, and the punishments so harsh because Hashem expects more when people are on a higher level. So, when it says Avodazara, we understand that that is purely the Avodazara of Menashe's Am Haaretz. You remember the group, the legacy, the descendants of the, the small following of Menashe Melech several generations back that still existed. They were a minority, they were fools and ignorant, most of the people opposed them. So what's the equivalent um, of their Abodazara today? What's that? So what's the equivalent of their Abodazara today? Well, there's no, I don't think we have it today because their Abodazara was definitely Abodazara, but 
when, we, when, when I'm saying this is kind of, this is meant to be limited, they were the source of it. They were the overwhelming exception to the world. They were the fringe society. And so it's not a reflection of all of Kuala Yisrael in these days that, uh, that this happened. The, the Jews in general were to blame for permitting it to exist and, and, and continue. And, right? Remember we said Sitiyahu himself was guilty. His guilt was a sin of commission, not of omission, not commission. He didn't do, he just didn't stop it. When it says, this is from Tanchuma, Medrash Tanchuma says, they were murderers. He says, count them, two murderers. Two murderers. Zachariah ben Yehoyada, you remember the blood that bubbled for, two, for 268 years. And Uriah ben Shemaya from? Tell Stone. From Kiryat Yarim, um, remember the murder where he's brought back from Egypt and, and the wicked Kim Yehoyakim has him murdered. Those were the two murders because they happened. All of Klal Yisrael is blamed for it. But that's what Tanchuma says, no more. Uh, when it says, this is the Gemara Baba Kama, that there was innocent bloodshed. You remember by Yehoyakim it says that the, there was innocent bloodshed in his days. That's an exaggeration, refer, the Gemara says this, referring to Gnevas Das. They deceived people in business. They thought that they were buying pink jelly beans, but it turns out that they were white jelly beans. I want my money back. But in those days, I mean, I kid you not, in those days, such a thing was a, was a sin. They, they were, I, I'm going to reinforce this idea. When you're living in times of prophecy, the knowledge of Hashem is incandescent. You, you have little excuse. If, you, if you're speeding and the traffic cop is right behind you and, and he's clocking you and you're watching him and you, get, you, make, you actually catch eye contact in the middle of your speeding and he pulls you over, you can't say to him, officer, no, I wasn't speeding. He's looking at you. He's clocking your time. There's no, you can't get around it. It's a very different, and Daniel tried to say, you know, what is the, how does this connect to our days? I don't think, it, our days in many ways are, are the polar opposite of this. We are in a state of Hester Pony where we're not, we don't have that immediate knowledge of a Kaddish Baruch Hu, so it's not, it's not the same. We also don't have a Vodazara like the old school. No, I mean, it's not like that. I mean, like, their, um, their imagination was over-exaggerated by the Navi. So, like, we, in, intentionally, so as, because the people were expected to, to do better. So, that Avera, for their level, right? Yeah. What... Example of an avera like that. Um, oh, for, oh, I see what you're saying. Oh, yeah, well, for them, for us, it would be it would be it would be gross bloodshed, or you know, or, or, or in, other words, in other words, absolute murder in the streets, or you know, like like you know, but like things that happen so nowadays, or embezzlement, or or men trading wives, or or whatnot. So it's not exaggerating. It's, it's complete. It's, 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 it's no meaning. In other words, in other words, that's what we would be doing today. That would be on par because we're on such a lower level that we would have to get to that level of sin to deserve that kind of harsh rebuke. Back then, they were actually at a much pu- much more pure level, so that the level of rebuke for two murders was similar to for us, where so the whole society is falling apart so, with murder. So, so if you flip it, what kind of error would that be compared to us? Like, for example, they're saying Maveros on our level. Like what Sexuality. I'm saying, I'm saying, by us, it would register so such as a limited level that two people murdering would be a good. By us, two people murdering on a given year would be a good year. No, I mean, like what, like accidentally bumping into somebody and not saying you're sorry and just keep going by and that's it. I hear that's what you're trying to say. I'm trying to. I'm trying to picture the magnitude of the error that they were doing. And, I, and that's, I think, I answered the question before. Let's 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 leave it at this. It would be something like sexuality that's small for us. Like, like just like no, but it wouldn't be small is my point because we are not them. We are living without prophecy. We're living in times where the knowledge of a Kaddish Baruch Hu doesn't, I mean, if you're from, if you're Talmud Chacham, so then you're living in constant knowledge of a Kaddish Baruch Hu. But the average person in the street is not, so they're held much less accountable, so they are given a lot more leeway, and therefore they can leave a life of profligacy, of, 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 of relative evil, and that's how they get to this level. Is, 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 is the point that I, I think has to be emphasized. Um, further, it says in the Gemara in Chagiga, it says that um, people who strayed away from Hashem, the Gemara explains, they weren't, they didn't, they lacked a melus in Torah, they didn't, they learned Torah, but they didn't, um, they didn't <coughs> take enough pains. They didn't, they didn't uh, push themselves enough. You know, they had um, two cups of coffee in the morning instead of, you know, instead of just like going in and, and uh, you know, and they, they took a coffee break in the middle of their learning, and they, whereas they should have just sat there in the base medrash without moving once. 
and that was counted as a sin because they could have done better. Um, in the Gemara Kedushin, it says that we were adulterers. What does that mean? They were adulterous. That was a figure of speech. They were negligent in certain procedures involving Kedushin and Gerushin in terms of marriage and divorce. Not that they actually committed adultery. And everything is understood in, as it were, in italics. All of these sins are italicized relative to their level. Um, further, we see that when they're rebuked, they generally took it very, very seriously. You remember we said that Ahaz, the wicked father of Chizkiyahu, when he stood in the presence of Yeshaya, he trembled. You know, the prophet meant something to him. And we're going to see a few generations now in the second temple period. That's not the case. The villains are on a much lower level, and they're bad, and they don't care. They'll kill the, they'll kill the messenger. Whereas uh, these generations would not have done that. Um, this is one of the reasons why this was a devastating destruction. But the exile is efficient. It lasts 70 years, and they return a bre- a, really a lifetime later, one lifetime. Whereas after the second temple, totally different dimension, we're still reeling from the Chorban Bayashani, from the second temple's destruction. Different different nature. So we'll have to compare and contrast. We'll do that more when we discuss Bayashani's destruction. We learn in the uh, Tosos Yantif, in Seches Para, that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the beams of the Besam Mikdash, meaning the support walls of the Besam Mikdash, but the foundation walls all remained, meaning a lot of the basic infrastructure remained the same. And if I am Zolcha, if our cousins across the street would stop rioting, I would really be delighted to take you all around the city. I'm, we're trying to eke out some kind of a teal for next Tuesday. I keep pushing my plans and some of them get rejected because, oh no, that's too dangerous. But um, I really would love to take you up to Harazesim. There you go. I'm sure I'll get away with that. I look just like it. The, um, that'll help. Uh, <laughs> the, um, if, can you picture standing on Harazesim for a second? The yeah, eastern no, flank of the city, quite persuasively, nobody knows this for sure, but I think a very strong case, a very strong case could be made that though that eastern side of the city, right on, right there by the Temple Mount itself, um, is the lower reaches of it, especially down by the southeastern corner, still exist and are standing from the days of Shlomo HaMelech himself, and David HaMelech too, for that matter. Wait, can you, do you think it would be safe to go there now? Harazasin? Yeah. Listen, I, I don't think there's safe or unsafe. I think that you have to you know, hedge your bets, and I think it'd be probably not a good idea to go there. Therefore, therefore, I'm not. Last Friday, my sister's in town. Was in town. She left. She's in town. My family. It's you. We'll do something. We ranked the things that we could. We wanted to do, and and Harazasin was number one, without exception. And we just thought, why go right now? All, you're aware of what's going on, the, the tragedies, the murder of the, of the young woman down in Alon Shfut, the soldier in Tel Aviv, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's really an unknown, uh, you, you know, you don't know what's going on, but what we do know is there have been many events up in Arazesim that continue to take place, and uh, you don't want to go where there's trouble. Will there be a point this year when you think I would be delighted. I, I, will, keep my, I will keep my eyes and ears open, and, and when we have an opportunity, there's Rosh Hashem will try to do it. It's a life-changing kind of a thing. You will never look at Yerushalayim the same way again once you've been to Because all of there's like, I don't think any buses go there, so you kind of have to walk. Right? Uh, no, no. I, I, stick with me. Stick with me. I'll, I'll uh, you know, I'll show you how to do it as, again, Bezras Hashem, when when it, when it uh, when it comes up. Following all of the events, all along is the great tragic figure of history, Yirmiyahu HaKohen Hanavi. His name, Yirmiyahu Hashem, will raise, actually has a double meaning. Literally, it means he raises his hand as a Kohen. How does a Kohen raise his hand? To give the Tudokhan, to give Birkos Kohanim, exactly. Good, good Akiva. Um, secondly, how does a Navi raise his hand? A Navi raises his hand in a gesture of rebuke against the people, because that's part of a Navi's job. Right, exactly. And I, nicely done. And he will act out all of our uh, discussion today. You'll just stand right here um, for the for the hearing impaired. <laughs> okay. Um, he led a long life, a tragic life. Born, of course, his birthday, the ninth of Av. In fact, he makes re- he, bor- he born in a place just north of Yushlan called Anasos. Um, Bez Rosh Hashem will hike near there later on this year. We usually do a hike in Wadi Kelt area near there. The um, 
that's where one of my kids is on Teal right now as we speak. He went to Wadikel with his yeshiva today. Uh, not far, not far. Just out north, uh, north east of Jerusalem in the Judean desert. Um, you can get, you, after you pass Hizma, you would then go out towards modern-day Anatot, and part of the whole valley that stretches from the north all the way down to the uh, Jericho area uh, is what they, the Arabs called Wadi Kelt, it's in, in Hebrew, in Prat. Yirmiyahu Anabi comes from there, and he makes reference to his birthday when he says, Arur Hayom Asher Yuladatibo, Cursed is the day that I was born on, both literally and figuratively. Um, he is understanding his life as one that's very difficult and therefore seem, seeming intrins intrinsically cursed. He's not complaining. He's simply describing. He's living during times of curse. Uh, a person's allowed to acknowledge that. It doesn't mean that he, was, uh, he lived in a state of depression. Daniel, you say something? Is, no, somebody's going to say something? Oh, uh, just discuss, but let's not take us a field here. Especially since I'm recording this for, uh, for uh, no, it's okay. We're, 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 we're informal here, but try to keep things um, efficient. Um, Yirmiyahu descended from great, he had great ancestors, um, Yehoshua and Yehoshua's wife, of course. Don't say her name twice. Rachav. Uh, twice, but you'd have to know what she looks like. Yeah, that's okay. On his mother's side, of course, they um, people who didn't like Yirmiyahu, and he was not a popular man. There were a lot of detractors. They didn't like hearing the truth. Um, made fun of him by making fun of his great-great-great-great-grandmother and her profession, her former profession. We know that Yirmiyahu had authored Malachim. He offered his own, um, his uh, eponymous book, self-titled book, Yirmiyahu. And, um, and Eicha as well. His nevuah spans the last five monarchs of Beis David, that, whose names I just wrote on the board. Yoshiao, Yahachaz, Yoyakim, Yoyachim, and Tzipiyahu, and beyond. He's certainly with us after, after the Chorban in a very significant way that we're about to hear. He, um, I mentioned this before about him. All later nevuah, all later prophecy is said to be contained in Yirmiyahu's prophecy, making him the last original prophet. Everything can be found in him. Hashem had given him the daunting task of rebuking Jews who were on a roller coaster ride for disaster, and they didn't want to hear it. Yesterday we discussed the mental state of denial that they were in. They were not receptive to the rebuke. Um, he did it. Loyally to Hashem, he had Yira Shemaim. He did it at personal risk. He did it because he loved Klal Yisrael. He had genuine concern. He really hoped that they could turn things around. They ignored him, but not just. They didn't just ignore him. Uh, they were scathing. They spread rumors about him. They accused him of visiting a harlot, a prostitute. Do you realize the implications? Yeah. For a regular person, it sounds bad. For a Kohen, it was the worst kind of slander. Yeah, right, right, right. They accused him of committing adultery. His own brothers, the Gemara Baba Kama tells us, his brothers attacked him. Uh, he further got no immediate reward for his, his efforts. Uh, they fell. On, most of his words fell on deaf ears, and he persisted because he knew it was the right thing to do. You know, we've said this before that sometimes. Uh, doing the right thing is not always the popular thing and sometimes it's by definition not popular and uh, you have to do it anyway. Um, still, if you learn Yirmiyahu with this, I, I think it's really, keep everything we just said in mind, open the book of Yirmiyahu and you find, I mean, what a, a role model, what an inspiration to us. What comes from Yirmiyahu you'd think would be a bitter soul, but no, quite the opposite. I mean, okay, it's a lot of harsh rebuke, that's true. But what, comes, what really comes out of his nevuah is some of the most optimistic, encouraging, loving psukim that you'll read in all of the Tanakh. So we learn, for example, at the end of days, we read a vision, that in the end of days, uh, that, right, we know, that we, know, we know some songs to this, to, that put these words to Nigun, uh, that, that, that the children will return, that we read this on Rosh Hashanah, that we're going to return to our borders, all come from the same man. And that's because he managed to, and we've been kind of building towards this one too, there was a Navi, there were two previous Navim who were great individuals but had defects. 
One of them was Tovea Kabud Ha'av, and not at the expense of Kabud Bain. He was, he was more zealous for Hashem's honor than the, the Jewish peoples. Who is that, famously? Eliyahu Anavi. Another one was Tovea Kabod HaBain at the expense of Kabod HaAv. He was more defensive of Kal Yisrael than, than of Hashem himself. And that, of course, was Yonah ben Amitai. Only Yirmiyahu managed to combine perfectly both qualities. He was Tovea Kabod HaAv. He, he spoke endlessly about uh, elevating Hashem's honor uh, and never at the expense of his Avis Yisrael of loving Kal Yisrael. You try to combine those two. It's exceedingly difficult in life. Uh, pay attention to this. It's such a it's such a valuable point. I say this in my Kibbutz Amshir. You know, it's you have to honor your parents. Let's say, and this tends to apply to a lot of people. Let's say your parents are not holding where you are religiously. Let's say you've come further than your parents, or your friends, or anybody else. It's such a hard uh, balancing act to do that you would be simultaneously uncompromising in your own practice, based on where you're holding and your own convictions. You shouldn't compromise yourself. But at the same time, people around you in your life may not be holding there. So you must, your religious obligation, especially with your parents, is to cut them slack. Let them go. Be lenient. Yeah, yeah, mom and dad's fine. And to not just do it, not do it with like a guilt trip in a tone of voice. But no, you're fine, it's great. And, and, and to quietly go about your own um, exacting measures and keeping halacha on your own. Nobody should see it. Nobody should feel threatened by it. That's quite a juggling act. Most people in human nature do one or the other. Either they um, compromise in religion and they kind of cop out and you know, do all kinds of things that they probably shouldn't do and rationalize and all the rest of that. And that's how they manage to be lenient and laid back with everybody else by compromising on themselves. <coughs> Conversely, we're familiar with the other extreme of the guy who is uh, way too harsh with that. He's harsh on himself, but he's harsh on everybody else too. You know, these firebrand personalities. And I, that's not ideal either. To get it, Goldilocks or Yirmiyahu just right in the center where you're exacting on yourself and your covered Shemayim is impeccable and at the same time loving of Klal Yisrael and endlessly forgiving. Uh, you, you, we, can learn, we can learn endlessly from the example of Yirmiyahu and Avi. Before the Horban, he had been davening continuously. Uh, he had left the city. He was released from prison. He would left the city to, priest, to preach. When he left the city, of course, they spread rumors that he went to help the enemy to demoralize uh, all of Klal Yisrael. He couldn't win. They beat him up. They threw him into a pit. They left him to sink gradually in the quicksand or mud without killing him directly. Uh, the king's servant was Baruch Benaria, who, who made sure he got rescued, and they put him in what was called the Chatzer Matarah Jail, an area that maybe later this year, I'll, if, if it's the correct place, is a traditional place called Chatzer Matarah in East Jerusalem that I uh, maybe will go to, um, where Yirmiyahu Navi was uh, imprisoned, and some say traditionally later was buried there. Very possible. I, I was very careful in my choice of words. If you noticed, there's a traditional place for such a thing. There's a there's a there's a presentation. It could be the place is certainly a first a prominent first temple dated tomb, and that alone means could be. Why not? The location is reasonable. The Protestants have taken it over as uh, claiming that it's the site of Yashka's burial, um, but that's much less founded or based, based on anything reasonable. Um, in the chaos that ensues, Hashem tells him to go back to his, from Yerushalayim to his original home in Anosos to reclaim his property. Hashem is sparing his beloved prophet and Yirmiyahu leaves the city just when the end is, is, is imminent, right before Tisha B'Av. And when he returns to Yerushalayim, he finds destruction. As he rises, as he, as, as he walks up the Haramishcha, Harazesim, the, the Mount of Olives, he, he finds the destruction. The city is over. It's gone. It's after Tisha B'Av. And there's a long line of survivors who are being led now, sadly, crushed into exile. He runs to them. He hugs them and they kiss him. And for the first time, finally, they hug and they kiss him back. They realized Tati Yirmiyahu knew what he was talking about. Why didn't we listen to him then? Uh, the uh, Medrash Yalkut Shimoni says, had they cried earlier, you know, now they're crying. Terrific, right? Everybody's, everybody's weeping. Had they only cried earlier, they could have stopped the Chorban Beis Mikdash. And why is that a very important Medrash? Why was the Beis Mikdash destroyed from the outset, we asked? Where do we see a, a, a harbinger of this? The spies. 
Remember the spies coming back, generating tears from Klal Yisrael, and Hashem's reaction, we're told that when, because you cried tears in vain today, you will cry real tears for good reason in the future, predicting the Chorban Beis Mikdash, and now they're crying again, inappropriate, or appropriate tears, but uh, tears that are too late, shed, shed a little bit too late. Now, Nevuzaradan, the Rav Tavachim, the great butcher, the general, finds Yirmiyahu marching in the, ch- in the line with all these uh, refugees, and he says, he says, you're my ally. We're going to get you out of those chains. Come and walk, walk with us. Why do they think so? Because they heard Yirmiyahu lay into his people so much, they naturally perceived him, the enemy of my enemy must be my friend. They naturally perceived him as an ally. So he said, come over here, you don't belong there, Yirmiyahu. And so they, they, they freed him. Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar was there. You see, they, they, you know, they, they, have, they have him freed. Uh, and again, Zeremiah is there, and he goes right back in line, and he finds the boys, and he joins them in shackles, and he puts shackles back on himself. And again, Nebuchadnezzar then tries to free him. It's, it's kind of funny almost. You know, like, he's like, no, 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 and he keeps going back. Is That's Yirmiyahu. He loves the Jews. It's not gonna, if they've got a difficult situation, it's his situation. That's where we're all supposed to be. We're supposed to be nosa ba'olim chaverenu. We're supposed to carry the yoke of our friends. Yirmiyahu is a, is, is a picture book example of such a thing. Again, he finds elders in shackles, and he goes and shackles himself with the elders, and again, they release him. Go ahead. Is he necessarily bad? Yirmiyahu? Nuvuzaradan, at this point, we don't know the chronology of everything. If you've noticed, there are a lot of loose ends here. Remember I just told the story about bringing Tzidkiyahu back to Bavol, where they try they bring him in front of Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah. So wait, is Nebuchadnezzar back in Bavol, or is he right. here? So clearly the chronology of all this is not totally clear. There are several things going on in relative sequence, but maybe need to be reorganized. The stories are told in different places, that's why they don't all add up. Something along these lines. This is this is this is this is what transpired. Uh, he uh, at the border of Eretz Yisrael, a different medrash tells us Nevuzaradan gives him an option. He said, "You can come with us to Babel. You can do anything you want, Yirmiyahu, but you're also entitled to return to Eretz Yisrael." And um, Yirmiyahu turns to Hashem, and Hashem, ta- would that be great? He said, "I don't know. Let me ask Hashem." You know, that's what, what Yirmiyahu can do. Hashem, what do you? Th- and Hashem tells him. He says, wherever you go, you choose, wherever you go, I'll go to the other, yeah, I'll go to the other place so the Jews have somebody to comfort them. And so Yirmiyahu goes back to Eretz Yisrael, and Hashem, as it were, the Shekhinah, joins Klal Yisrael on their exodus out to Bavel. Yirmiyahu returns, and he comes back to an ancient capital place with Yushalayim lying in ruins, he goes north of Yushalayim to Shmuel's hometown, namely Mitzpah, not far from here in today's the area of Ramallah today. And he goes to Mitzpah. He grieves all along the way from the Pasuk in Eicha, Libi, Libi, me I, me I, my heart, my insides, they're, they're falling out. Um, I'm probably wrong, but uh, I'm just thinking that Yirmiyahu is like, we know that Eretz Yisrael is Hashem's home, right? And it says it's his house. Mm-hmm. So by him going to Eretz Yisrael, he basically said to Hashem, you know, get out of your house, I want to go in. As it were. Everything that we say about a Kaddish Baruch Hu is anthrop- anthropomorphic, not to be taken literally. It's figurative, it's meaningful, he doesn't abandon us in our darkest hour. That's how we understand it. But obviously, as my Chana would be, my, my two-year-old Chana would be the first to tell you, Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere. She's just getting the words down, you know. Uh, right, so that's not a, not a, not a real kasha. Um, after the Churban, Hashem laments to your meow. This is another story happening sometime in this period. How it all works out sequentially, you'll figure out. He says, I feel like a father whose sons have died on his, we- his son has died on his wedding day. He says, maybe something can move me. Go summon the Avos. Go summon Moshe Rabbeinu from their graves. And so Moshe, so Yirmiyahu goes and he makes, tri- he makes a trip all around the, the land. He goes down the Hebron uh, to the Mars Machpela to where the uh, Adam Rishon and Chava, Avram Yitzhak Yaakov, Sarah, Rivka, uh, Leah are buried. And he summons them. He goes out to Harnavo, the secret burial place of Moshe. And Yirmiyahu finds it and summons Moshe from the, from the, from the Kever. And all of them pour their hearts out in tefillah. Our avos, our yamahos never really die. We, uh, it said, and they all pour their heart out on, on behalf of Klal Yisrael. And none of them really do it. None of them quite have the tefillah. 
to uh, make up for this terrible disaster. Until finally, the last of them, Rachel Menu, whose yard site was just acknowledged, Rachel Menu makes her plea, and she says as follows. You know, Hashem, you remember, my father Lavan wanted to give Leah to my husband. And I wanted, excuse me, to Yaakov, who was supposed to be my husband. And I really wanted to marry Yaakov, but I didn't want her to be humiliated. So I taught her the special signs that we had worked out exactly expecting this eventuality that Lavan would trick Yaakov and, 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 and substitute Leah for me. And so we worked out these signs, but okay, he did it. He tricked Yaakov. And now that it's a fait accompli, now that it was something that was done, I can't re- re- retract that. I'm not going to embarrass my sister. So I shared the signs with my own sister so that she would retain uh, dignity. I overcame my Sahara to be jealous. Certainly, Hashem, you can overcome your jealousy to forgive my own children and not be jealous of the idols, of the, of the faults, of the, of the, the straying that they had done. It's, a, it's an interesting comment. She said, she, but, but in a sense, that's how it's put to us. The Kaddish Baruch Hu says, study the Klala, he says, if you turn to other gods, you're betraying me. It's as if you're committing adultery. Well, we know that God doesn't. Not that God has, Hashem has no, it's all anthropomorphism. Hashem has none of these human emotions. But what she's effectively saying is that I, as a human, I do have human emotions. And I overcame it. So you, who is the Almighty, who's not subject to these human emotions, how much more should you overlook their... I'm not denying that they had inadequacies and that they were gross inadequacies, but perhaps you could find it within you to forgive them. And on some level, her tefillah reaches the Kaddish Baruch Hu as none others do. Kol Rachel Baneha. At this time, we find this, we also read this, this portion on Rosh Hashanah. And the Jews are on their way to Gaulus. And we remember now, to keep track, we already, there are Jews around in Gaulus. Some are left behind in Eretz Yisrael. Uh, we've already uh, did a quick survey of the Jews around in Egypt, maybe as far away in, as in Spain and France, maybe up in Ammon and Moab. But there was already the infrastructure set by the children's exile and the, the exile of the Harash and the Mazger, uh, the Talmud Chachamim, who had already built the great yeshiva and the other, the other Torah um, establishment, the rest of the Torah establishment in Babel, and now the rest of Klal Yisrael is being marched tragically out to uh, exile. And it's a famous march that I want to describe, but go ahead, Yitzhi. You said, you said at, at this time there were Jews already in Spain and France? We talked about that the other day. There's, there's um, indication. If th- there's some who want to say Tarshish, the ancient Tarshish, where Yonah, for example, is, is, is supposed to go, uh, tries to go, tries to run away to, might be Spain. If that's true, then there were Jews, in, there's indication they might, they might have been there even from the days of Shlomo HaMelech. Um, the Yemenites I mentioned have a tradition that they, their community dates all the way back to the days of Shlomo. Not verifiable. We have no way of knowing if that's true or not, but okay, it may, it's plausible. It could be. Wait, where do, where do they walk everywhere? Back in the day, yeah, there were some ships, but usually it was no, by it like was by walking. Like Sometimes, if you're wealthy, by by some kind of an animal. Bubble was a march. It was what? Walking from here to Iraq. Mm-hmm. In the modern day, if you hear stories of um, refugees from Iraq, especially in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, many of them and many of the grandparents would tell you uh, horrific stories. Uh, of how walking sometimes with I- inadequate shoes or no shoes all the way to Eretz Hakodesh. On their way, they were... Certainly symbolic of coming back that way, the same way that Avram and Yaakov trekked from Orkazdim to, uh, to Eretz Yisrael by way of the Fertile Crescent. Um, notice, uh, if you can picture this geographically, nobody in history ever made a direct beeline across today's Jordan, um, a more direct route to, to the Fertile Valley of Bovel, because it's pure desert, you die out there. Everybody traveled by the north by way of the Fertile Crescent. One of the reasons, one of the reasons that um, some question the identification of Rachel Imenu's grave uh, in the traditional place south of Jerusalem is it doesn't make sense if her grave is supposedly well-located for Klal Yisrael going out to exile and returning from exile, it makes a little more sense that she should be north of Jerusalem since that was their natural uh, path of flight. When they they're going... Would they, that was, she was very specifically all the way to Egypt. Why? Why was she buried? That's the question that's debated. That's actually the subject of a machlokas tanaim. 
and the no, she's buried there, and the, the, the idea that she would come out, as it were, from her burial and be there as the Jews went to exile and returned. The exile specifically out to Bava. No, but Rachel was buried way back. Right. So, so in anticipation, the Kaddish Baruch who knows everything in all time, it would make more sense. It also makes a little more sense that she would be buried in her own child's territory. That would be Binyamin, north of Yushalayim, and not in the traditional place of Yehuda, south of Yushalayim. Other arguments, but that's not this year right now, so I want to I move on. We'll talk about it another time. We'll go up as Rashi and the Rachel, and I'll give you the whole scoop. Um, on their way to exile now, they are attacked. I mean, can you imagine this? The Jews have been starving as is, and now they've been beaten, and, and, and some of them are at death's door as is, and now... They're, they, they're attacked by a succession of enemies from Ammon to Moab to Edom. Edom, Asaph comes and attacks the Jews when they're down and out. What does that remind you of Asaph attacking the Jews when they're down and out? Amalek, attacking, attacking the weak, the stragglers, the Amalek coming out, typical of our history, in a fight that's not even theirs, all attributed in the famous chapter of um, the following bit is all accounted for in the famous chapter of Tehillim that we read. Uh, some people say it before benching on the weekday. It's, it's um, Kuf, Kuf Lamed Zion. And, uh, and we say, Aru, Aru, Ari, Sodba, they're coming to destroy us to the foundation. It's the same journey that we find even Bnei Yishmael get into the, get into the wicked... Uh, act of, of abusing the, these poor bedraggled Jews, they come to the starving refugees and they say, here cousins, we have food and drink. We did, we did. They bring what kind of food? Khatifim, salty snacks, the saltiest of the, of the salty and big jugs of, well, it looked like water, but instead they were filled with air. And as the Jews, th- and they say, drink and eat, and eat and drink, and they filled their, 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 their bellies, their ravaged bellies, with salty food making them even more parched, more thirsty, and as they greedily grabbed the uh, jugs for a little bit of precious water, instead of water, their air filled their bellies and split them open. They died horrific deaths. That was why way back when, in last week's Parsha, we found Rashi bringing discussing discussion about the angels saying to Hashem, let the kid die. What are you sparing Ishmael for? Don't you know, this is what we talked about it earlier this week, don't you know that in the future, B'nai Ishmael, they're going to do this to the Jews, to which Hashem says, I judge the boy Ba'asher Husham as he is. And because as he is, he's, he's still relatively a tzaddik. You have to understand what that means. Um, so he spared Ishmael. In the end, all of these nations come to Hashem, Bavel at the forefront, but all of them, they said, we didn't do anything wrong, Hashem. You know, after all, the Jews had it coming to them. You know, It's not our fault. We were just doing your bidding. So this is Mashmah from the Navi Nachum. We talked about this the other day. Hashem's, Hashem's response. They deserve punishment. You did not have to be the messengers of punishment. I have many shlichim. If you weren't the ones, I could have found a different way, meaning you're not absolved. The fact that you did this, you're accountable. Oh, okay, that's, that's another issue. But nobody can claim, oh, I'm just an agent of a Kaddish Baruch who's doing what Hashem wants anyway. Well, someone had to do it. Fine. They were the ones doing it. They're not absolved of guilt. I don't know. Anybody who did it, and if it's not a person, so it can come through natural disease. It could have been wild animals. It could be a lot of different agents of change. The fact that they rose to it, that's their fault. 850 years after Yoshua had entered the land, and it's, an exact, it's a clean number, why the clean number? It's to show the inevitability of it. In other words, this is all part of the scheme of history that we're a part of. 850 years after Yeshua enters the land, the survivors march to their exile. Nebuchadnezzar left about 6,000 behind, mostly the Amha'aretz from Menasha, meaning the dregs of the dregs. Um, their purpose is to tend the fields and vineyards. They're going to figure uh, significantly in the next story we're going to tell. Yeah. But first, but first, uh, as the Jews, Wait, how many? How many six thousand approximately, mostly the Ama Aretz from Menashe. As they reach the area of Bavel, they rest by what we call the Euphrates River, Nachopras. More of them die drinking the polluted waters. All of this, by the way, take out that chapter of Tehillim. It spells all of this out. Alnaros Bavel Sham Yashavnu Vizochrenu Et Sion. Right, we, we, and, and all of this is describing this, this tragic, this tragic uh, journey. They continue walking with dignity. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like the Jews looking so dignified. So he takes scrolls 
of Sifrei Teira. He tears them and has his men turn them into sandbags. And he, heavy, heavy sandbags, and he forces the refugees to walk with these heavy sandbags bending over their backs. The Pasuk says, Al Tzavarenu Nirdafnu, on our necks, on our backs, we were pursued. And they start crying, and Nebuchadnezzar sees them crying, and he tells them, I don't want tears, I want joy. This is a happy day. And he takes the Levim, the Levim who are responsible for our great musical, the greatest music ever. That's why music is an issue today, because there really is one, the most sublime of music is that which is played by the Levim in the base of Mikdash. And he tells them, go play your, your instruments. And the Levim take their kinoros, their lyres, their harps, they hang them on the willow trees. After I do this, Go take out even an English translation of, of Tehillim 137 and see how this is all explained in the in in the, in, 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 the, in the in the in the Psalm. And, and this is the rivers of Babylon. This is also by the waters of Babylon yeah. we laid right. They were wept. This is all happening. They hang their kinoros on the wi- willows, and they proceed to do something shocking. The Levim bite off their thumbs. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land is understood by the Medrash as we can't sing and we won't sing. We won't use the song that's used to dedicate the Baruch Hu for a Vodazara. And when Nebuchadnezzar sees, hold the thought for just another minute, when Nebuchadnezzar sees this, he, he goes into a rage and he massacres thousands. And the Jews, for their part, rejoice because they didn't compromise themselves by singing to Abu Zara. Um, Good. Nebuchadnezzar hold off. He is a, an important central figure. We're going to have to try to understand who is he, what is he about. But I think that'll become clearer later on. In the meantime, collect all these tidbits as part of the character study because he is an interesting psychological profile. Right. I mean, he's certainly despicable, but he's more than that. He's got something going on about him. And, and he's one of the figures in history, because he has such arichus yom and such longevity, he actually figures into a lot of really prominent stories. Uh, so we're going to hear a lot about him, and this is just the beginning. Uh, we'll get to that, too. When in Bavel, <coughs> the Jews who were there have been following the events, they have their generation's equivalent of uh, SMS. They have... Okay. I wouldn't say SMS is quite prophetic, but, uh, but it's something like that. They've been following there for all the events leading up to and, fo- and during and following the Korban. And, when f- and they're, they're, w- they're ready to greet the survivors. And when the survivors finally arrive, they go out to greet them. They're wearing, now they're told to wear victory clothes of white, but they carefully conceal black garments of mourning underneath the white garments and they welcome the Jews and they embrace them and the Jews in Bavel settle. They're impoverished, they're downtrodden, but they settle around the different cities of the River Valley, places like Tel Harsha, Naharda, Tel Aviv. That's one of the reasons why they took the name Tel Aviv in the modern day. If you go to the center of Tel Aviv, right outside of Dizengoff's home, you can see a statue and why, and, and the Pasuk in Yechezkel, where the name Tel Aviv comes from, and why they considered that. I mean, in the modern day, I might as well mention it. Why did they mention Tel Aviv? The secular were looking for a brand new city that was a little bit of the old, but also a sign of the new. And part of their motivation was Herzl's book, what famous book was Alt Neuland, which means, from German, old new land, because it has both the elements of the old and the new. And so they looked for a metaphor that would fit that. Tell, an archaeological tell, is a symbol of everything that was ancient. Aviv is the spring, a symbol of the new. Tel Aviv, as a city in Bavel, now became a city in Eretz HaKodesh. And, um, and they settle in this area. And the last story for today is yet further tragedy. Meanwhile, back in Eretz HaKodesh, the 6,000 Jews, mostly the, the Am Haaretz of Menashe, are left behind because if you conquer a land, you cannot, and we already learned this, you can't leave it empty. Somebody's got to be populating it. And so, and so those are the subjects um, of the king, of Nebuchadnezzar, in his new vassal state of, of uh, Judea. And he appoints a governor by the name of Gedalia ben Achikam ben Shafan. You remember Shafan was the one who discovered the Sefer Torah in the days of Yoshiahu. 
And um, what do we know about Gedalia? We know Gedalia also was an older man at this point. He was a, a young advisor to Yoshiao himself. He once rescued Yirmiyahu, so he's a great person. He's described as a tzaddik. He's more than a tzaddik. He's wise. He's noted for his gentle, his gentle manner. He's a modest individual. He's extremely trusting to a fault, yeah. as we're about to hear. And, and um, Nebuchadnezzar has him appointed of, as the governor over the province of Yehud, Yehuda. His headquarters are up in Mitzvah. He welcomes the refugees warmly. He encourages them to stay in Eretz Israel. They're afraid. I mean, can you imagine in such times living here, living anywhere, where are you going to be? They're afraid. He says, no, no, it'll be fine. Just stay with me. And the plot thickens. Meanwhile, up in Amon, the king, uh, uh, excuse me, Aram, the area that was once Aram, the king, a fellow by the name of Baalis, you don't have to know all these names, um, decides he wants to assassinate Gedalia because the land is mostly empty. He's going to move in and conquer it. That's what they did back in the ancient world. And he decides to make a coalition with the surviving Jew by the name of Ishmael Yish ben Nisanya. Once upon a time, the, the name Ishmael was not uncommon among Jews. That, for some reason, seemed to wear out from the 7th century. Go figure. Seventh century, right? uh, the common era, that's the advent of Islam. So no more Yishmael, uh, not many Yishmaels among Jews. But once upon a time, including Yishmael ben Nisanya, and they conspired, that there was such a name, and they conspired to assassinate Gedalia. Why Yishmael? Why would he want to do such a thing? He was a relative of Tzikiyahu. He's from the Davidic line. And he, he feels, he feels, what are you talking about? This guy's not from the house of David. I am. If anybody should be governor, okay, it's not king exactly, but you know, I'm more qualified than he is. Let's get him out of the way so that I can take over. And um, the idea was we're going to assassinate him and show Nebuchadnezzar that Jews can't be trusted and thereby giving uh, the, the Aram and the Ishmael a footing in the land. Ishmael comes with his ten men and he ingratiates himself and the date is Erev Rosh Hashanah appropriately enough, and Gedalia, his trusting, warm self, welcomes them, and he gives them a hug, and he says, come, spend Yantif with us, you're my guests. And as he welcomes them to his home, he's tapped on the shoulder and brought to the side room by, by a fighter who's, who's, whose name is Yochanan ben Kareach, who has inside information, and he knows what's going on, and he warns Gedalia, don't be fooled, this man is up to no good, do not trust him. And in, in fateful words, Gedalia hears this report and he says, I mean, in other words, it's all, this is a narrative section of the Sefer Yirmiyahu, that's where you hear the story. He says to Yochanan, Sheker Ataover, you're lying. You're, you're giving over a lie. I don't believe you. Don't say Lashon Hara. And he ignores the warning. And at his, at his, at his meal, at his Yantiv meal that night, Ishmael, as according to the plan, rises up with his men and they murder everybody present, including, uh, almost everybody present, almost all the guests. Yochanan gets away and he murders Gedalia ben Achikam. Uh, Gemara comments on this whole episode and blames Gedalia. Kind of shocking. This trusting, beautiful soul, this tzaddik of a person. The, the Gemara tells us, Lishnabisha, Lashon Hara, bad, bad word. Even though you're not supposed to accept it, hear the key words, Michash Mihu Mibayu. You should be cautious. If you hear a warning, if they tell you don't go to Harazesim, at least take precautions. Don't go to places that are dangerous. If you have ideas, don't do this. This is brought down in the Chafetz Chaim, the Shmir Salashon. He says you should believe a rumor insofar as it involves self-defense. Protect yourself. Don't be naive. Don't be a fool. That's a halach lamaisa. We learn, sadly, by the experience of Gedalia. The next day, this, the story even gets worse. A group of unrelated 80 men that, are, that we hear are from Shem, Shiloh, and Shomron come. They're in a state of mourning. Beard, they have beards. Their, their clothes are torn. Apparently, there are different reasons why they're mourning. Maybe because of the Horban. Maybe other reasons. Yishmael goes down to the roadside. Mitzvah is situated just on the main road. And he greets them and he says, welcome, welcome. The host in mitzvah sent me to you. He'd like you to come to the house and be his personal guest. He says to these 80 innocent men, uh, they come, he kills them. And the whole thing is meant 
to, be fr- to frame Gedalia. He puts the sword in the hand of Gedalia, as it were. He'll claim that, um, that Gedalia did it all, and um, he, Ishmael, the hero, killed Gedalia in self-defense, and therefore Nebuchadnezzar should trust him as the new ruler in Judea. That's the plan. Um, and then, and here's the party line you've been waiting for for a while, Yishmael throw takes all of the dead bodies and throws them not far from here into a pit that had been dug centuries before by King. Not going to find it. Anybody? I, I gave you this one. When we learned it, I said, pay attention. We're going to find this pit in the future. The pit was dug by King Asa, another tzaddik who made a mistake. And he dug the pit when he made a coalition with the non-Jewish king of Aram. Also, oh, Aram was in that story. And he meant the pit to be for his, his adversary in the north, um, Basha, the king of the north. And he never used it for that. And now, the Gemara illustrates the principle, Megalgalin chov al um, what goes around comes around. And whatever is used in a, in a non-pure way has a way of rising up even at a totally different state in the future, in a different generation, to come to, and, and to be used against Klal Yisrael. And that's what happens with this pit. It's also described this, this, this uh, exact turn of events in the Gemara in Nida. Um, <clears throat> that pit would be discovered many centuries later by one of the uh, Amoraim, the Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananiah, uh, somewhere in the area of Beit Choron. Yishmael now, was that? Beit Choron is, is uh, as you travel on the road, the 443 from Yerushalayim, out towards, let's say, in the direction of Modi'in, you pass what's called Male Beit Choron. Not far from Biblical Mitzvah. I mean, these, all places, these places are approximate, but reasonable guesses. Um, the story winds down. Ishmael tries to take the surviving refugees as captives as he tries to flee and go back to Ammon. But in the end, Yochanan, who had warned Gedalia, comes with a troop of men and they attack Ishmael. It's a very, it's a lot of intrigue in the story. They come by Givon, by Jib, and they they are attacked by Yochanan, and Ishmael escapes. And that's the last we ever hear of him, and his whole plan is foiled. He never becomes the ruler. And the remaining Jews are now left in a terrible, terrible quandary. (laughs) Get this last part. They're in horror. They're in terror. What is Nebuchadnezzar, what are the Babylonians going to do to us now? Should we stay? Should we leave? He's going to see that this is a terrible mess. They can't trust the Jews for anything. He's been betrayed, as, as it were, constantly by us. They don't know what to do. And they approach... Tati, they approach Yirmiyahu, the prophet, Yirmiyahu, Chatanu, Avinu, Pashanu, we've sinned, we ignored you, we pulled your beard out, we, we discarded your words of warning and prophecy, now please daven for us and listen, Yirmiyahu, now whatever you tell us, we will do. So Yirmiyahu, moved by their words, agrees. He davens to Hashem, and Hashem informs him unambiguously, you will stay in Eretz Yisrael. Yermiyahu takes the word back to the people, and he says, you will stay in Eretz Yisrael. The people look at Yermiyahu, and they say, Chutzpah! You want us to stay in Eretz Yisrael? Are you kidding? We're going we're to die here. We're going to Egypt. Almost done. Give us a couple minutes. The... Uh, we're, we're, they call us an Amkshe Orif. There's a reason for it. We're not an easy people to lead, right? <laughs> okay, that's what they say more or less. I, I, I exaggerate for literary benefit, for literary effect. But um, they claim, no, you've been duped by your student Baruch Benaria. He just wants to stay near Israel, so the so the uh, the prophecy will descend on him uh, before he leaves for exile. We're not staying. We're going that. De- we're going down to Egypt. Um, it's a problem. We'll see. Um, they make the decision. They're going to leave Eretz Yisrael. I'm sorry, I'm again keeping you over time, but I have to finish this. You'll see why I have to finish the story. Yochanan ben Kereach, the other Jews, including some of Tzitkiyahu's daughters, are, are in this group. Um, they make the decision. All of the Jews left in the land, they're going to set out for Egypt. And for the first time since Yoshua entered the land, Eretz Yisrael, and for the last time in history, Eretz Yisrael is bereft of a Jewish presence. 
And that's not the way it's supposed to be. Rambam says it explicitly. The world depends on Klal Yisrael in Eretz Yisrael. And it's meant to be that we stay and they left. And they shouldn't have left. Um, and they specifically shouldn't have gone down to Egypt of all, of all places. Um, Yirmiyahu, ever loyal. He's Tovea Kavod Av, Tovea Kavod Ben. He shrugs his shoulders and he says, I'm coming with you. And he joins these Jews who betrayed him and they go down uh, in case they need him. Turns out Egypt is not quite the safe refuge they hoped it was. The, some of the people fall into a Vodazara. Uh, some of them starve to death. Some of them are slaughtered by the wicked Parochofra, who's there in power. And finally, the rest of them are carried back in the end to Babel by Nebuchadnezzar himself. You can run away, you can hide, but you can't, you can run, but you can't hide, right? Kadesh Baruch Hu, in the form of Nebuchadnezzar, caught up with them when he conquered Egypt. And finally, Avinu Yirmiyahu and his disciple Baruch Benaria go to Bavel. At the end of his life, although there's a source that maybe they died in Egypt, but another source tells us they go to Bavel. And finally, they come and they're received by the Jews in Bavel, where they're finally revered and given the, the credit that they're due after all these years. We know Baruch will be the conduit of the Masora. He'll teach his disciple. Who's Baruch's <laughs> disciple? Baruch gets it from Yirmiyahu. He gives it over to Ezra. In, 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 uh, and we know Yirmiyahu has a grandson named Ben Sirach, who's conceived by artificial insemination. Go look at the Gemara, Mishle Ben Sirach. Oh, and that's. that's with, uh, good, uh, that yes, one? that's correct. That's the Gemara in the, in the bathtub. And uh, Yirmiyahu, according to this shot at least, leads out the rest of his life in Bavel. And that's where we'll, find, we'll pick up our scenario tomorrow. What exactly was in Bavel uh, relevant to the last discussion? That's the Gedalia who we fast for. We don't fast on Rosh Hashanah because we don't fast on the Yantav, so we fast on the 3rd of Tishrei, or in this year when it was pushed off because the 3rd fell on Shabbos, on the 4th of Tishrei.